This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 84, November 15, 1984. First of all, we had planned today to have Otto Scott and John Saunders uh, with me here for a discussion of a very important current subject. But Otto had to leave uh, for some uh, speaking engagements, and John is in... Southern California for the filming of a segment in uh, a TV series, Hill Street Blues. He will appear on two segments, so uh, he'll be there next week as well. However, our next Easy Chair will include the two of them. I'd like to begin very briefly with reference to a book by a friend of mine, uh, just as a jumping-off point, I may return to this book at a later date. The book is by George Hunston Williams, The Mind of John Paul II, Origins of His Thought and Action. George retired recently from Harvard, where he taught history. When he first began his teaching career, not at Harvard, uh, he was my teacher and has been my friend over the years. Uh, incidentally, George was the only man who predicted uh, before the election of John Paul II that he would be the next pope. Now, the point that I want to use as a jumping-off uh, item from uh, George Hunston Williams' book on John Paul II is this. He calls attention to the fact that there are very great influences from Luther and Calvin and other Protestant leaders in current Catholic thought. And he regrets that uh, John Paul II, who is a personal friend of his, does not call reference, call attention to these facts. Let me add by uh, way of parenthesis that George Williams is an expert in medieval Polish history and has lectured there repeatedly at the request of the Polish government and this is how he came to be a friend of John Paul II. Now, I bring that point up, that is, the influence of Protestant leaders on the Catholic Church, because one thing that you don't find much about is that the various churches have cross-fertilized one another. They have had a profound influence one upon the other, for example, we rarely think of the Greek Orthodox Church as having an influence on Protestantism. But one product of the uh, Orthodox Church that many, many Protestants are dedicated and deeply attached to is the King James Bible. It was the Eastern Church which preserved the received text upon which the King James Version is based. And this is why the King James Version differs from other translations. 
It was the Eastern Church that believed that God not only gave an infallible word, but preserved it. This is a doctrine which neither Catholic nor Protestant scholars in the main adhere to. I should add, a growing number of Protestants now hold to the idea of the received text. At any rate, we owe that to the Greek Orthodox Church. The borrowings, as I indicated, are many between Protestant churches and between Protestantism and Catholicism and vice versa, just at random to throw out a few. The idea of vestrymen in the Episcopal Church was borrowed from the Presbyterian idea of an elder. The Presbyterian doctrine of the ownership of all the churches within the bounds of a presbytery by the presbytery and the denomination is borrowed from the Catholic Church, from the office of the bishop. And this uh, doctrine has been borrowed by a number of Protestant denominations, even in a few court cases, uh, been used by Baptist conferences. So the borrowings are very real and many. Some good borrowings, others not so good. Let me add that the borrowings from uh, the synagogue and the temple in the time of our Lord are even far greater. Werner, in a book entitled The Sacred Circle, A History of the Music of the Church, deals with the fact that a great deal of the music of the liturgical churches, Catholic, Orthodox, Church of Armenia, and a few others, is the music of the temple and of the synagogue. The church organ is a borrowing from the temple. It was banned in synagogues after the fall of Jerusalem because they said the organ is an instrument of joy and we are in mourning because the temple has been destroyed. Many of the hymns that uh, one finds in hymnals, including some very evangelical hymnals, are really uh, carryovers from the synagogue often without much revision. One of my favorite hymns is very obviously Hebraic, The God of Abraham Praise, and you'll find that in a number of hymnals. Then, too, the structure of the College of Cardinals was borrowed from the temple, where the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 elders layman and the high priest and until very recent in the history of the Vatican the cardinals were not priests they were laymen and in the early years of the church the cardinals were laymen elected from the church at large 
Well, one could go on at great length to deal with this, and it's too bad that someone has not written a history of the subject, because it is a very, very important one. Now I'm going to go to another subject, again related to church history. And now I turn to Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, and to his Apology, chapter 39, where he speaks of the nature of the Christian society. And I quote, As I have refuted the evil charged against it, I may point out its positive good. We are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This violence God delights in. We pray too for the emperors, for their ministers, and for all in authority for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. I'm going to stop at that point. The rest of it is very interesting as he describes uh, their services and uh, the gifts uh, collected to help uh, boys and girls destitute of means and parents and old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck, and if there happen to be any in the mines, that is, compulsory labor of persecuted Christians, or banished to the islands, or shut up in prison. But note this. He says, we pray for our rulers, and for all their ministers and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. Now, it may come as a shock to you in this day when so many uh, churches talk endlessly about the any moment return of Christ and are praying for the second coming and hoping it'll come soon before things get any worse and so on and so forth, that in the early church they prayed for the delay of the final consummation. There was a very different spirit there. Now they were fully aware that the New Testament declares, as in Revelation, our Lord says, I come quickly. And they knew what that meant. Our Lord comes quickly without any delay. Now, this does not mean that he comes tomorrow or the next day. He comes without delay quickly in terms of the consummation of all that God has purposed. So there are no stop gaps, no pauses, no delays in God's plan. Whether that coming is in 20 or 25 or 30 centuries, the point is, our Lord says, there is no waste of time.
No needless delay. Everything moves in precision, marches towards that consummation so that we must not think of it as quickly in time, but quickly in terms of the accomplishment of all things that God has ordained. So when the early church prayed for the delay of the final consummation, what they were saying is, Lord, there is so much for us to do. Give us time to do all that thou hast commissioned us to do, to go to the ends of the earth and to bring all peoples into thy kingdom. So it was a prayer of men who were geared for action, not sitting back waiting for a rapture. There's a great deal of difference there. Now to another book, uh, this by David Biven and Roy B. Blizzard, Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus, published by Macar, Arcadia, California. I'd like to call attention to a very important point here that deals with the meaning of salvation. Very, very important uh, point. I quote, In Hebrew, there are many synonyms for salvation. The word salvation itself is little used. Other words express this concept more powerfully. Righteousness is one of the synonyms for salvation. Zion is called the city of righteousness. The branch of David is called the Lord is our righteousness. In great distress, David asks God to pour out his wrath on his enemies. Let them not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be recorded with the righteous. Jesus exhorts his disciples to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. Of such people is the kingdom of God made up. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim judgment to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42.1 Even the Hebrew word judgment can mean salvation. In the same way, the verb judge often means save. When David is in trouble, he cries out, Judge me, O God. The judges of the Old Testament were saviors or deliverers of the people, and not judges in the modern sense of the word. God is called the judge or ju the judge of all the earth. Righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. Rachel called the son that Bilhah bore her, Dan, he judged, because she said, God has judged me. Over and over, the prophet Isaiah uses judgment as a synonym for salvation. Therefore, judgment is far from us. 
and righteousness does not reach us. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Judgment is turned back, and righteousness stands at a distance. End of quote. A very important point which we often forget. This book, by the way, is published, I said, by the MACOR, M-A-K-O-R Foundation, in 1983, I do not have their address, but it is in Arcadia, California, 91006. Well, let me see if I have it on something else. Yes, 1043 Heritage Oaks Drive, Arcadia, California, 91006. A very important point. Now to another excellent book, Walter C. Kaiser, K-A-I-S-E-R, Jr., Toward Old Testament Ethics. With minor exceptions, I agree emphatically with the author. The book was published by Zondervan in 1983. And... One of the things he says, which is very true and faithful to the Scripture, is this, and I quote, The law, in addition, was that which made living possible. Without it, people could not live. Speaking, of course, of biblical law. They choose human laws or the laws of the nations, and thus they sinned against the Lord their God. And when... Israel failed to live by this law. Yahweh graciously sent prophets as his representatives to urge the people to return not only to the law that I commanded your fathers to obey, but also the law that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. There it was a difference between having life and having and living it more abundantly. Thus we see that grace is always the soil in which the law must take root. And law is the natural outcome and the only appropriate response to so high a calling and privilege. Unquote. Then this very interesting point, and I quote, the first means to attain to holiness, which is to make the Israelite reflect the holiness of God, is uniformly to reverence his parents. Thus Leviticus 19, 1-3 affirmed, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his father and mother, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Unquote. Now to this, again quoting, Truth, according to Henry Blocher, has four basic characteristics in the Old Testament. First, it is personal. Second, it is objective. Third, it is exclusively divine in its origins. And 
forth, it has a historical fullness. Harvesting all these points, he concludes that truth is the word of God in as much as it is his word. It gives us his name and the knowledge of him. It is the foundation of our life and of our assurance. Finally, it requires our obedience. As far as our words are concerned, their truth is their conformity to the word of God. Unquote. This is an excellent book, and I commend it to you. Toward Old Testament Ethics by Walter C. Kaiser, published by Zondervan. Now to another and related point. When I wrote my paper on Montanism, I called attention to the fact that one of the things that marked Montanus as a heretic was that despite his physical lack of wholeness, he declared himself a priest. A number of people wrote in to, uh, to say they didn't see why we were bound by that doctrine in the New Testament era. Well, the simple fact is that over the centuries and within my lifetime, physical wholeness has been required of any candidate for the ministry or the priesthood. It is only of late that this antinomianism has overthrown even that point. Now, this is what God requires, and I'm not going to make any apology for it. Let me turn, by the way, also on that point to Yaroslav Pelikan, the first volume of his The Christian Tradition, A History of the Development of Doctrine. This first volume it covers the years 100 through 600. And he writes, Already in Clement of Rome and in the Didache, the attributes of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament were being applied to the ministers of the church. This was thus something that had deep roots in the history of the church. Well, now to something of a related sort, a book I referred to at the close of the last session, Stephen Ozment, O-Z-M-E-N-T, When Fathers Ruled, Family Life in Reformation Europe. This was published in 1983 by the Harvard University Press. This is a very uh, important work by one of the younger historians and an excellent one. He's a professor of history at Harvard. He has written some excellent studies of the Reformation era. Now, the point he makes is one that I've touched on and have dealt with in some of the position papers and elsewhere. 
the patriarchal concept of the family was not anti-woman. When the family was patriarchal, the family was the center of authority. I mean by center of authority, the center within society. It was the basic institution. It was the power structure. It had more power than civil government, and it was the basic government. And for excellent studies of uh, this fact, the patriarchal family, in fact, the history of the family, two books, unfortunately, both out of print, are outstanding. One, the book on uh, the family by Carl C. Zimmerman, and second, Marriage and the Family by Zimmerman and uh, L. Cervantes. These books are outstanding as they deal with the three types of families in history. The uh, patriarchic uh, family or trustee family, the patriarchal or trustee family, the domestic family, and then the atomistic family, which we have in the modern world, and which we had, of course, in Rome and in Greece and more than once at the end of an age. Also important, if you're interested in pursuing the subject, is our Journal of Christian Reconstruction, an issue on the family, which is still in print, which has sold thousands upon thousands of copies. It also includes an excellent summary article by J.D. Unwin, a great researcher on sex and culture and the relationship of the two. Uh, and in this article, Unwin summarizes a lifetime of research. I commend you to those works. But because the patriarchal family was the basic governmental center, it meant that both the father and the mother had a great deal of authority. If you want to see what that meant, just read the last chapter of Proverbs. It speaks of the wife who, while her husband sits in the gates as a judge, and I referred to this recently, exercises authority, she manages the business, deals with all kinds of things authoritatively and with power. Well, Osbent's point is that with the Reformation, there was a tremendous restoration of family life. With the decay of the medieval era, the rise of the Renaissance, and the prevalence of humanism, family life was in a sorry state. Some medieval, or uh, excuse me, some medical historians have estimated that at the time of the Reformation, one-third of Europe was venereally diseased. Europe was collapsing in moral decay. There was then a dramatic restoration of family life in both Protestant and Catholic circles.
and the results were dramatic in their effect on society. The parents were recognized as being, in effect, priests and bishops, as exercising tremendous power, and they were trained in that power. An ungodly husband was dealt with very, very plainly and uh, bluntly by the theologians. Any man who tried to play the macho bit and throw his weight around, the church condemned strongly. As Osment says, contrary to the impression often given by modern historians, paternal authority in Reformation Europe did not necessarily mean that a man was free to dominate his household as he pleased. Enormous moral and legal pressure was brought to bear on house fathers who flagrantly abused their mandate. Among neither Protestants nor Catholics was the ordered and disciplined home, a tyrannized home. All condemned the husband who played the lion in his house. Only in the most grave matters should a house father ever deal severely with his wife, children, or servants to exact obedience. As the uh, Saxon Lutheran Justice Menius said, the Holy Spirit has not inspired that insanity which believes that a husband should prove his manhood by repeated grumbling, insults, curses, and blows to a poor, defenseless, weak woman. The Spirit rather wants husbands to love, care for, and honor their wives as their own flesh, just as Christ does his church. There are many filthy beasts who can themselves neither crow nor lay eggs, yet they demand nothing less from their poor wives, insisting that they run the household with absolute perfection. They think they can set everything on a right course if they just complain, curse, insult, bully, and strike their poor wives and smash whatever they get their hands on. Scripture has condemned such loutish behavior. Then another uh, Lutheran pastor in his sermon uh, described the husband no man should ever be in these words. There is many a pug who is convinced that he would not be a real man if once in many weeks he spoke a kind word to his wife. He stalks about the house and sits at table like one who is mute speaking to his wife only when he decides to rattle her ears and sink her heart by reprimanding whatever she has said or done, even when her actions are well-intentioned and blameless. Such monsters should have become monks and hermits rather than husbands, for they are more at home in the desert with wild animals than in a house at the side of a rational wife. As Osment goes on to comment, a wife then was no maid or common servant of her husband, as he was the father of the house. 
She was the mother of the house, a position of high authority and equal respect. William Gouge, the Puritan, described husbands and wives as near equals, quoting, For all degrees wherein there is any difference betwixt person and person, there is least disparity between man and wife. Though the man be as the head, yet is the woman as the heart. Can it be thought reasonable that she who is the man's perpetual bedfellow, who hath power over his body, who is a joint parent of the children, a joint governor of the family, should be beaten by his hands? The wife is as a man, uh, uh, self, uh, for the two are one flesh. The English is old-fashioned there, and that's why it sounds strange. The man is as a man, the wife is as a man's self. No man but a frantic, furious, desperate wretch will beat himself. Uh, going on to quote, on more than one public occasion, Luther said of it to uh, his wife Catherine, I am an inferior lord, she the superior. I am Aaron, she is my Moses. And he freely accepted her criticism and wrath. Osment continues, a husband also owed his wife fidelity. On this subject, pamphleteers and tractarians universally rejected a double standard of sexual behavior. Well, there is much more of this. The uh, doctrine of marriage was developed as companionship based on mutual respect and love. And therefore, in Geneva especially, marriages between young women and vastly older men, and vice versa, uh, were officially opposed. Uh, by the way, let me say such marriages between young men and old women and vice versa were very common in those days because of monetary reasons. And Osment says, the marriage counselors of the Reformation urged people to seek mates they believed they could learn to love because they first respected their persons and shared common values. Here, quoting again from Osment, Martin Bucer defined a fully confirmed marriage as one that had celebrated a wedding feast and enjoyed plenty of carnal intercourse. And he deemed no true marriage to exist where there was not a true assent of hearts between those who made the agreement. Well, there's much more. It's a delightful book, an excellent study, and uh, well worth reading. Let me see if there are a few more things that I might share. 
Uh, I like this from uh, Brunfels. And I quote, For what more Christian thing could happen than that children be raised well and taught self-discipline, usable skills, and a sense of honor? What richer and better inheritance could any father give his children than to help them advance in these three things and become useful and reliable to themselves and to others? I can summarize in no better way than by citing words I once read by a man of God who said, If one wants to reform the world and make it Christian, one must begin with children. Unquote. Then uh, perhaps this. In the rearing of children, Osbent says, and I quote, privacy and social extension were not perceived as contradictory. The great fear was not that children would be abused by adult authority, but that children might grow up to place their own individual wants above society's common good. To the people of Reformation Europe, no specter was more fearsome than a society in which the desires of individuals eclipsed their sense of social duty. The prevention of just that possibility became the common duty of every Christian parent, teacher, and magistrate. Now this, perhaps, will summarize the thesis of the book. So let me quote one more paragraph. Surely to judge the past by egalitarian standards that have yet to win a clear consensus even in the modern world is to sow disappointment wherever the historian turns. If the women of Reformation Europe could respond to its present-day critics I suspect they would say something like the following. To be subject to a man in the 16th and 17th century did not necessarily mean either the loss of one's identity or the absence of meaningful and rewarding work. The many chores of housewifery and motherhood may have been personally fulfilling for the mass, vast majority of women, but they hardly prevented women who were so inclined from working in addition, at their own or their husband's craft. Women as well as men had both household and professional duties. In the patriarchal home, authority was shared by husband and wife. A wife's subjection to the rule of her husband was not the subservience of a serf to a lord or a maid to a master or a child to a parent. Despite male rule, an ordered equality existed between husbands and wives. While it cannot be claimed that Protestants were unique in achieving loving marriages, their new marriages, marriage laws, especially those that recognized for the first time a mutual right to divorce and remarriage, 
became the most emphatic statement of the ideal of sharing companionable marriage in the 16th century. The domestic legislation of the Reformation encouraged both spouses to be more sensitive to the other's personal needs and vocational responsibilities, thereby enhancing the status of both men and women, unquote. That paragraph tells you what Osment is showing in this book. Well, thanks to John Lofton for telling me about that book, which I had not noticed until he called it to my attention. Now to something very, very different, John Berger's Ways of Seeing, which deals with art, essentially. A book I don't entirely agree with and often strongly disagree with. But I thought this uh, section was interesting. And I quote, Publicity has another important social function. The fact that this function has not been planned as a purpose by those who make and use publicity in no way lessens its significance. Publicity turns consumption into a substitute for democracy. The choice of what one eats or wears or drives takes the place of significant political choice. Publicity helps to mask and compensate for all that is undemocratic within society, and it also masks what is happening in the rest of the world. Publicity adds up to a kind of philosophical system. It explains everything in its own terms. It interprets the world. The entire world becomes a setting for the fulfillment of publicity's promise of the good life. The world smiles at us. It offers itself to us. And because everywhere is imagined as offering itself to us, everywhere is more or less the same, unquote. Very important point there, because a very critical factor in modern voting is consumption. Am I doing better as a consumer? Is more important to voters than is there more justice? So this calls attention to a, a very interesting and important point. Now this was sent to me by one of you and uh, unfortunately I separated the envelope so I don't recall who it was, but it came from Georgia, and it is a release uh, from the Georgia Pacific Corporation. And I quote, on May 23, 1984, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency began a process which could result in the ban of many wood products used in home construction and in furnishings that have been used safely for years. The EPA is studying particle board and plywood made with formaldehyde resins. This action could drastically affect your business and ours. 
This federal action requires your attention, besides a quite significant impact on your business. A ban on products made with formaldehyde resins could affect all of our daily lives. Formaldehyde is the most important commonly used adhesive materials in this country and in the products you use. It is in the glue that helps to provide your customers with the roofs over their heads and the shirts on their backs. It is also used in a wide range of products from cosmetics and toothpaste to apparel and furniture. In fact, it is used in products con constituting 8% of the gross national product. It is now under attack. The story is becoming all too familiar. Laboratory rats are given excessive doses of a chemical and later some may develop cancer. A federal agency overreacts calling for bans or severe restrictions on the chemicals. It's happening again, but this time to building products. The EPA says that because some laboratory rats exposed to excessively high concentrations of formaldehyde develop nasal cancers, the chemical may pose a widespread threat to humans. The fact that the rats were exposed to concentrations so high that their noses were literally burned and that humans would not tolerate those levels for even a few minutes has been ignored by the EPA. A substantial number of studies of workers exposed to formaldehyde over long periods of time showed no increase in cancer incidence. In fact, in almost a hundred years of use with millions of people exposed, there has not been one reported fatality from formaldehyde at the levels which led to government action. Furthermore, formaldehyde is naturally present in the environment and in our own bodies. It has been an essential element in man's development. In fact, the amount of formaldehyde one receives each day from living in mobile homes, which the government claims may pose widespread harm, is equal to the amount of formaldehyde naturally occurring in one apple. Well, I won't go on to... Uh, read the rest of this, but you get the idea... Georgia Pacific says, we need your help. If you agree with us, we urge you to write to the EPA, sending a copy to your congressman, demanding that proper scientific reasoning and plain common sense be applied to reach a rational decision. The EPA address is Document Control Office, TS-793. Office of Toxic Substances, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, 401M, M as in Mary Street, Southwest, Room E-409, Washington, D.C., 20460. The matter is important. They're going to make life impossible to live. They don't dare tackle natural products because they're going to find more 
of all these things they feel are toxic, like formaldehyde, more on one apple than an entire uh, mobile home or your house. Uh, it would make it impossible to live in this world. Now I'd like to turn to The California Farmer, an editorial by Jack Pickett, the editor. I have a column in each issue of The California entitled The Pastor's Pulpit, which I've been writing, I think, for about 16 to 18 years. This editorial is entitled The Facts About Erosion. We are back to one of our peeves, and that is the statement that the U.S. is losing huge amounts of topsoil each year through erosion. The Soil Conservation Service is forever making exaggerated claims about the amounts of erosion and is always asking for more money to teach the farmers how to farm. Well, the millions spent for this purpose have produced very little results in preventing erosion. In fact, the good farmers have not only prevented erosion, but have improved the tilth of their soil. On top of this, the Nat National Agricultural Land Study of the Carter Administration, supported by John Block and various environmental organizations, keep claiming that we have a yearly loss of 3 million acres for farmland to urbanization. Julian Simon says the assertion is simply preposterous. It is contradicted by all the other available evidence, much of it very solid scientifically. The true figure is about one-third that amount. Another very important point is that the total urbanized land of the U.S. is less than 3% of the nation's area. Plus the fact that by irrigating deserts and draining swamps, we are adding about one and a half million acres to our productive farmland. Years ago, we were standing on a farm with the owner. In those days, they had a program whereby a person from the Soil Conservation Service would come on the ranch and tell you what crops should be planted on which type of land. The farmer said this guy eyeballed the place and told him which was the good land and which was the bad land and recommended crops accordingly. For this, you got a government check. The farmer said that the guy was wrong about half the time and had pointed out how the hills had eroded. The farmer said, you're damn right they eroded, and that's what formed this fertile valley we are now standing on. And if you are still worried about the population explosion, we read the other day that if you round up every person on this globe, you could contain them in an area 400 miles square, unquote. Let me add, they could live comfortably there. Well, now back to the book by J. Robert Nash, Zanies. To redo something from it about Jeremy Bentham, the philosopher, whose dates were 1748 to 1832. Uh, he was the founder of utilitarianism, a philosophy that said everything and everyone should serve some useful purpose from a humanistic point of view. And uh, 
He also coined the phrase, utility is the greatest good to the greatest number, which is the measure also of right and wrong. Now, quoting from uh, Nash's account, music was essential, claimed Bentham, and to provide music around the clock, he ordered pianos to be placed in every room of his house, including the toilet. When not playing himself, he employed musicians to lightly tap the ivories for his spiritual edification. The rich philosopher's lifestyle was not fastidious. One biographer reported that his apparel hung loosely about him and consisted chiefly of a gray coat, coat light breeches, and white woolen stockings hanging loosely about his legs, while his venerable locks, which floated over his collar and down his back, were surmounted by a straw hat of most grotesque and indescribable shape. Everything had its own uses, Bentham argued, including the human body, dead or alive. Burials were not only a waste of time and money, but brought, he said, the least possible happiness to the least possible number. There were sundry uses even for a good corpse. He suggested it was wasteful to spend money planting rows of trees along the driveways leading to stately mansions. It would be much more useful to embalm the bodies of family members and erect these mummies along those same driveways so that growing children would have the benefit of viewing their ancestors each day. To that end, Bentham, at the age of twenty-one, ordered that his body not only be embalmed and mummified in the best Egyptian tradition, but also in preparation for mummification be dissected in the presence of his closest friends. When Bentham went to his reward, his wishes were granted. His friends gathered to witness his dissection. A violent storm raged throughout the operation, the thunder and fierce lightning making the scene all the more macabre. One witness blithely reported that Bentham was clothed in a night dress and that his face possessed an expression of placid dignity and benevolence. The physicians performing the chore were overzealous and cut so much away that Bentham's skull later had to be replaced with a wax head. The body was embalmed, coated with copal varnish to keep out dampness, and then attired in Bentham's best suit of clothes, his favorite straw hat placed permanently upon his wax head. By his order, he was then put on display as a monument in a mahogany cabinet, which was placed in a room in London's University College, where it sits staring, cane in hand, to this day. A century later, another eccentric British philosopher, Charles K. Ogden insisted that for the sake of decency the underwear on Bentham's mummy be changed. Fresh linen was provided, and only Bentham's original outer wear remains. This ablutionary nicety would have no doubt irked the great utilitarian. One set of underwear should have been good enough for eternity. Unquote. <laughs> well, Bentham's influence on our modern age is far greater than most people realize. <laughs> Maybe that's why 
we live in such an insane era. Our time is up. I'll be back in two weeks with Otto Scott and John Saunders. Until then, thank you for spending this time with me, and God bless you.